1847, it's in Tsarist Russia, 75 years before the communist revolution. And there's a 27-year-old man who is part of this writer's group called the Petrushevsky Circle. And they were young revolutionaries at spirit, kind of, you know, kind of Les Miserables kind of thing. And they begin to both read and write things that are critical of then Nicholas I, who's the Tsar of Russia, and of the church, and of the military. And in that day, if you thought it was a bad day to get canceled on Twitter, they get arrested. They get thrown into jail. They're convicted of sedition or treason, whatever the charge might have been, and they're sentenced to execution. And on April the 23rd, 1847, this man, along with several of his compatriots, are marched out into an open field and tied to wooden stakes and blindfolded. And because they had been members of the military, it was an act of condemnation of you if you were found to be guilty of treason, that they would take your sword and break it over your head. And so all these men who had been found to be writing things that were inflammatory toward the czar, they were about to meet their death. And so they stood there waiting for the final count. And then at the last minute, their blindfolds are taken off, their tethers are removed, and it's been announced to them that their sentence has been commuted by the czar himself. In fact, that announcement or that notice had come to the powers that be the day before. So what they were called to do was to commit sort of a hoax execution in real time to be cruel. The person that it was part of that group, that 27-year-old at the time, his name was Fyodor Dostoevsky. Before he'd ever written a single novel, a single short story, on that day could have been his last day. And we would have never gotten any of his work. And you can imagine what he must feel in a moment like that. Pure horror and absolute relief. And as you might expect, he's a writer. He's got to get his words out. He writes to his brother, Mikhail, and in the midst of that letter, he says this, why, didn't I face death for three quarters of an hour today? Live with this thought in my head? Was I not a hair's breadth away from death? And now I am living again. I am being reborn in another form. Not only did Dostoevsky in that moment feel great relief, he also felt a moment of great clarity and sobriety. Because he goes on to his, letter, his brother to say this, when I turn back to look at the past, I think of how much time has been wasted, how much of it lost in misdirected efforts, mistakes and idleness, in living the wrong way. However I treasured life, how much I sinned against my heart and my spirit, my heart bleeds now as I think of it. Life is a gift. Life is happiness. Each minute could be an eternity of bliss. In a brush with death, it is, though, it is as though he has been roused from a kind of sleep. Having been at the precipice of execution and then brought back, now everything seems a bit clearer. I think Katie Winkler is the expert in Dante's Divine Comedy. But at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, the protagonist there who has to descend into the seven levels of hell to find his way, he says this, When I had journeyed half our life's way, I found myself within a shadowed forest, for I had lost the path that does not stray. 
I cannot clearly say how I had entered the wood. I was so full of sleep at the point where I abandoned the true path. Dostoevsky and Dante both speak of a common experience that in life, you can drift. And when you drift, you enter into a kind of sleep while being awake. And something needs to rouse you again. I start our sermon with those two words because the passage that we're about to look at ends in a very enigmatic way. Paul, we think, is quoting from what was either an allusion to Isaiah 60 or a baptismal hymn that they would sing, the congregation would sing over you when you were baptized into the faith. And that hymn begins with these words, Awake, O sleeper! I think Paul is using that baptismal hymn from that early church day to speak to these early churches in Ephesians and to speak to you and to me. He's using the words like smelling salts to awaken us to things that perhaps we once knew or only knew in hints, but need to know again and to be awakened to such. We're going to listen to that idea about what it means to be walking in light again, to be awakened to light, the light of the world, and to walk in that light. And I think we're going to find application for that idea in three broad headings that are applicable to everybody, no matter what time or place you're in, in your involvements, in your identity, and in your intention. Those are all cryptic, I know, don't worry. In your involvements, in your identity, and in your intention. What do you need to be awoken to this morning? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you won't know until we're done. But that's where we're going. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to back up into where we were last week and get a running start. If you would, if you'd stand, we'll start in Ephesians chapter 5 and start in verse 6. Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can, you can sit. If you have not been with us, if this is your first time with us, we have been listening to a letter that was written a long time ago, and we have argued that on the front end of that letter, it is there to tell us about the music of the gospel of grace, that in light of what Jesus has done for you, you are forgiven. You have been reconciled to God. You have been united 
by faith in Christ with all that God has, and you have been adopted forever. And that gospel, that grace, is meant to be for us an inward music. It is a song that we do not forget. And like any good song that you remember, that anybody starts singing one bar, you could go to the next bar and feel the rest. It stays with you. It sinks deep. It is there at all times. And boy, there are moments in your darkest night of despair in which you might be compelled to sing it just to know that you're still alive. That's an inward music. And that's the song of the gospel. But what we've said on the second half of the letter where we are now is that that song is out to do something. It's out to prompt something. And that which is out to prompt is something that we've called a dance, which is just sort of a, a picturesque way of talking about a kind of life. And the word that Paul opts for to kind of stand in for the word life is this word walk. And all the way back in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you've been called. And then for the last few weeks, we've been hearing Paul talk about and unpack the idea about walking in love. Next week, we'll hear Paul kind of finish out this appreciation for the word walk by how he talks about walking in wisdom. But this morning, he's trying to tease out for us, what does it mean to walk in light? And he says it there clearly in verse 6 and 7. Walk, do I have that one? Yeah, walk is sort of light. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, therefore do not become partners with them. That's where he's headed. But before we go there, we should back up a little bit. Last week, if you weren't with us, we, we took time to retrace our steps about how Paul mentions certain missteps in the dance, certain flawed ways of seeing, viewing, and responding to the world, and we called it the unholy trinity of temptations, sexual morality, impurity, and idolatry or covetousness. And rather than just sort of terming those things as bad, ooh, ugly, we said what's at the core of each of them is something that is entirely contrary to what it means to walk in love, and that thing is self-absorption. Every one of those things, immorality, impurity, idolatry, it's all about you. You are at the center of all things. And if, in fact, we have been the object of God's love, both before Jesus died for us and in light of Jesus dying for us and in the wake of Jesus dying for us, then for him to love us is totally self-forgetful. And therefore, we are those who do not look kindly or well on the idea of self-absorption. Those three unholy trinity of, of issues is all about walking in something opposite to the love, and it's also walking in opposition to what it means to walk in light. The first place that walking in light applies is in a social dimension. Everything always has an impact on who we're in relationship with. And the word that Paul uses there in verses 6 and 7 is the idea of partnerships. We, we tried to find an I word for each of these this week, so partnerships becomes involvements. Partnerships are something to be concerned about. And before we go any further than that, let's pause for just a second. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's, um, 
I'm doubtful that any of you, the last time you went on a walk through your neighborhood with a friend or a spouse or, you know, whatever it might have been, you, you probably didn't walk down the street and see somebody on the front porch that you had a problem with and go, ooh, I wonder if they're the sons of disobedience. <laughs> and the other partner said, well, you know, they are from out west, so, you know, what do you really know, right? You didn't, you didn't think in those terms. It, it wasn't in that way, and, and, and so you kind of stopped there. And so let's, let's be clear about what Paul was talking about, because before we start to dunk on him and, and, and argue that Paul was just sort of stuck in an old way of thinking, um, Paul was talking about something here than more than just associations or acquaintances. He's talking about those kinds of relationships in which there's personal investment, in which you are entrusting yourself to others, in which there is something more at stake here than just in knowing them and knowing things about them. He's warning about the kinds of investments that we make with others, whether it's in business relationships or in personal relationships or whatever it might be. And you, you might hear that and you think, well, wait a minute. Um, Jesus ate with everybody. He never kind of said, I'm going to need to see a laundry list here of things that, that's true of you before I will ever sit down with you. He never, he never did that. And that's what he gets accosted for. That's what he gets killed for. You eat with tax collectors and sinners? So what is, like, Paul, Jesus on the different pages here? Well, wait a minute. Jesus ate with anybody. But maybe the moment passes too quickly in John chapter 2 when he, you know, the wedding at Cana brings out the best wine. You know, mom says, do whatever he tells you, and he turns the water into wine, and boom, like, he's the life of the party all of a sudden. Yeah, wouldn't you be? And what do they want to do to him in that moment? They want to make him a king. And it says in John chapter 2 that Jesus escaped that crowd because he wouldn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in men. There's a way of being associated and loving and kind and present, but there's also a certain wariness about who you entrust yourself to, about who you give yourself to and whatever it might have been. So let's just talk about it in very real life here. Have you ever been in any kind of involvement with anybody in which after a while, they're happy to deceive you and maybe later to betray you. You ever had that experience? I bet many of you could raise your hand. You ever been in a relationship of any sort in which, man, they are so with you when they are with you, and yet at some point when they feel like you are no longer any use to them, they cut you loose. Kids, I wonder if you ever hang out with anybody that really loves to make somebody else feel awful. Like, they get juiced by that. In any number of these connections in which you are, you know, really drawn to be connected with them, there is a certain thing that Paul is warning against here. And walking in light always has this social dimension in mind. I mean, let's narrow it down just to personal relationships. You know, dating, spouses, whatever it might be. I know you think that I think every, every life lesson has a David Wilcox song associated with it, right? right? But, and I've, I've referenced this one to you before. He's got a song out there that says, if you are on a date, he doesn't say you're on a date. He goes, if, if he's rude to the waiter, rule number one, run. There is a weariness and a weariness of, of who you are connected yourself to and who you entrust yourself to. And if you're not aware of that, man, you are setting yourself up for something. Last week, we, we introduced to you, if not for a second time, Louise Perry, who, who, who's a Brit, uh, wrote a book recently called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And in her kind of wisdom for at the end of the book, 
she, she makes this recommendation. She says this, distrust any person or ideology that puts pressure on you to ignore your moral intuition. That sounds like don't enter into partnerships with somebody that calls into question your moral intuitions. And then she goes on in that same paragraph to say this, you can readily spot aggressive men, a handful of traits common to them, impulsivity, promiscuity, hypermasculinity, disagreeableness. These traits in combination should put you on your guard. She's talking about partnerships. That sounds like what Paul is saying here. So be careful about going, that Paul. Friends, who you're connected to, who you entrust yourself with. If you are ever part of a business relationship in which they begin to suggest to you, you know what? We could really score big here if we just bend the rules just a little bit. You get entangled with them. You have a choice to make. You're at a, you're at a crossroads. Do you pull out and, and have to cut your losses and lose big because of what you'd already invested in? Or do you risk going further with down the road with this person and becoming a little bit it's a little bit easier for you to make the next problematic choice later. Paul is saying, look, you walk down this road in those kinds of partnerships. You are either submitting yourself to harm, or what's worse, you are actually maybe making yourself harmful to yourself and to others. Do not be partners with them. Do not walk in darkness. That's his argument. That's where he's going. That's what he's warning us about. That's what it means to walk in light. Look, these Ephesian Christians to whom he is writing, let's, let's be clear, he didn't write to you. He wasn't talking to you. He was talking to them. And if you're an Ephesian, Gentile, new Christian, you only know one culture to be a part of. You only know one family to be a part of. And now you are being asked to step out of that world into a whole new family and leave all of that behind. You want to talk about social dislocation. You want to talk about being disoriented in real time. That was it. There was a cost to leaving that behind. And therefore, if you feel that cost, you can also sympathize with feeling the draw to go back in because of how much you're having to leave behind to become part of this new family. No, it's not identical to yours and my situation now. But if you don't think that you will feel a draw, an attraction to being involved in some form or fashion, oh man, he likes me, or oh man, we could score it big, you will feel that draw. And I hope that you will hear in the back of your head what Paul is saying, do not enter into partnerships like that. Maybe you don't think of them as sons of disobedience, but friends, it'll cost. And some of you already know it, and some of you might be in the middle of it right now. We walk in light. We're called to be awakened and roused from our sleep by how we think about our involvement. But where Paul goes there, it's even kind of his warning and his call to being awake, to being revived. It actually goes deeper than just who you're entrusting yourself to. And that's the second thing I think Paul is getting at here. It's not just our involvements. It's also our identity. Yes, you should be concerned about what harm you can do or what can be done to you by those involvements. But what's worse is about our identity that's coming in play here. And so that's what he says in verse 7. Do not become partners with them. Why? For at one time you were darkness 
but now you are light in the Lord. That's stark. He's not just saying, you know what? You were doing things that were really bad and really unwise and silly. That You were doing dark things. He says, you were darkness. And now you are light. He's, he's reaching back to what he said back there in, in Ephesians chapter 2 about you Gentiles. You were once, you didn't have a clue about what Israel had done. You, were, you didn't have the oracles of God coming to you. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were estranged from God. You were a living a life with your own God, not the God who is the author and finisher of all things. He's referring to that, but now you're a light. Now you are light because of how Jesus intervened on your behalf. And once again, we need to pause in the same way we did on that point before, because when you hear, you were darkness and now you're light, I know what most people in a modern world will say when they hear language like that. Uh, <laughs> that's binary thinking. You're making it so black and white. Isn't life full of shades of gray? You're, you're encouraging sort of this us versus them mentality. And you know what? That kind of concern is legit. I'm not, it's not wrong. So what do we do with that? You're right. You and I can get slotted into binary thinking. You and I can start turning into an us versus them mentality. You and I can forget that life is full of shades of gray. So like hearing all that, do we kind of take Paul's language here about darkness and light and kind of go, eh, that's just kind of what the old dude said. Let him have his, mate, have, have his day. Let's move on. Let me dismantle maybe some of your prejudice toward that idea for just a minute. And I'll do it in a kind of funky way. So here's a chart from Harvard University. Harvard University, oh, I'm glad you can read that, sorry. Um, <laughs> crystal clear, right? So at Harvard, they have something called the Human Flourishing Program. That's that little, little thing down there on the bottom right. And they track everything. And here's a study, right? <laughs> oh, a study, great. Um, their analysis of those who are part of faith communities, faith traditions, and those who are not. And they came up with several metrics, several indices to, to find out, like, what's the benefit of being part of a faith community? And if you could read it, you would discover that when it comes to depression, substance abuse, or risky behavior, you are less likely to report those qualities of your life if you were part of a faith community than if you were not. And by the same token, when it comes to investing in the life and the good of your community, in being willing to entertain the possibility of forgiveness rather than revenge, of, and I can't even read either, um, of wanting to give back to the community and, and, and avoid the things that are dangerous to you. Again, if you were part of a faith community, you are more likely to seek those good things than the opposite. Harvard is not saying darkness, light. They're not making those broad, definitive distinctions. But if you think that there's no difference here, you're not looking at the analysis. Depression, substance abuse, risky behavior, you prefer to be isolated and never help, and you, you're more likely to want revenge than forgiveness. Look, call what you will. That, that sounds a little bit like darkness. Now, let's back up a little bit and let's be honest. This is talking about all faith traditions. It is not 
splitting out Christianity from Islam, from Hinduism, from Jedi to being a Swifty, whatever it might be. That's a religion, you know. Um, the back row says, no, it's not. It doesn't split it out. It just says faith traditions in general. And they're also saying, Harvard is also not saying, well, given how fruitful and flourishing one might be more likely to be, it doesn't mean that any of those religions are true. They just kind of work. I am not here, and Paul is not here to tell you that the gospel is worth your time because it works, or because you might end up as part of a statistic at the Harvard Center for Flourishing. Paul is arguing that the gospel is worth your attention because it's true. What is true? What is Paul saying is true about the gospel? It is this, that because of what Jesus has done on your behalf, you have a new identity. You have a new status before God. You have a new outlook on life. And self-absorption is a thing now you no longer embrace, but now you try to avoid at all costs, even though you get, keep getting sucked back into that world. You have a new way of thinking about yourself. And in that life, that's light. And before that change, before that new sense of identity, you were wandering in some form of darkness, whether it was the deepest, darkest place or just some sort of shade of gray in darkness. That's a life without him, without that sense of identity, that's what you're signing up for. And when it comes to darkness, there is the darkness that is full of malice. It's full of anger and hatred and envy and lust and the desire for revenge. And that's a form of darkness and it's full of malice. But you and I both know that there are forms of darkness that may not have any kind of malice associated with them, at least upstream of it, but it can be full of fear. Parents, if you are trying to live vicariously through your children for everything that you feel like you failed at when you were their age, that's a version of darkness. Spouses, if you're trying to get from your spouse whatever you never got from your parents, and almost demanding it of them in ways that are very subtle and never spoken, that's a version of darkness. And what's true of us all is that there is a version of darkness that is very subtle and it is common to everybody in this room, and I'll be the first to acknowledge it myself, and that is to find a place of worth and meaning in what I do that is as fragile as porcelain, that can be taken from you and from me in an instant. And if it all rests there, if your whole life rests on it, it's a version of darkness. There was a movie that won Best Picture several years ago with um, Michael Keaton. It's called Birdman. Not Batman, but Birdman. And it's about um, kind of a washed-up actor who's on the back end of his career, Nothing's going right, but for a last-ditch effort, he pulls together a bunch of people to do a show that he might then find his meaning again based upon the kind of worth and meaning he was feeling in his earlier part of his life. And I want to show you a scene from that film in which he is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with his daughter, who is honest enough to tell him to his face that while you were trying to find yourself all that time, 
you forgot me. And here in this moment, she's having to be really honest with him, and he's trying to grapple with what he's out to do, and they both come to a realization. You can't do this to me. To you? Oh, shut up. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, you're talking about you. Now, what else is do new? The thing the where, thing you, where you, I'm you, making you. about me. Look, I'm, I'm trying to do it. something that's important. This is not important. It's important to me. Okay? Maybe not to you or your cynical friends whose only ambition is to go viral, but to me, this is, my God, this is my career. This is my chance to finally do some work that actually means something. That means something to who? You had a career, Dad, before the third comic book movie, before people started to forget who was inside that bird costume. You were doing a play based on a book that was written 60 years ago for a thousand rich old white people whose only real concern is going to be where they go to have their cake and coffee when it's over. And let's face it, Dad, you are not doing this for the sake of art. You are doing this because you want to feel relevant again. Well, guess what? There is an entire world out there where people fight to be relevant every single day, and you act like it doesn't exist. Things are happening in a place that you ignore. A place that, by the way, has already forgotten about you. You hate bloggers. You mock Twitter. You don't even have a Facebook page. You're the one who doesn't exist. You're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. It's not important, okay? You're not important. Get used to it. At the same time that she's kind of helping him to wake up to his illusion, she's having her own awakening. Kurt Thompson is a psychologist. He says everybody's waiting to find somebody waiting for them. We all want to matter. We all want to be in Eden again, so to speak. And we have found 10 billion ways of trying to find a way to matter and yet all of those versions are on sifting sand. To walk in light is to believe that you have an identity that can never be taken from you because you didn't build it. It is because he gave it to you. And the sooner and I, you and I come to walk in that, the freer we will be the less likely we, we will be to be sucked into those involvements that we know are on the basis of having an identity that is less than secure. And that gets us to the last thing, because when you have that identity that no longer makes those kinds of involvements that are a harm either to you or to others becoming that person, when you, when you kind of set that aside and you discover this identity, it, it leads to something else. It leads to a new priority, and that's the third thing about what it means to walk in light it's the third thing that we're to be awakened to. And the simplest way of putting it is there in verses 8 and 9. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He's talking about intention. What is your intention? What is your goal? Uh, there's a moment in Apollo 13 They've already had the oxygen tank blow up. 
They've already had to shut down everything that means that they're not going to be able to land on the moon, and yet they've still got to orbit the moon to get enough velocity to get back to Earth. And they get really close, and, and two of Jim Lovell's dudes there, Schweikert and, um, I forget, they're looking out the window, and they're looking at the moon, and they're beginning to remember what it would have been like to land there, and they start entertaining the thoughts of, maybe we could still do it. Maybe, maybe we could still go. And Jim Lovell kind of looks at them like, gentlemen, what are your intentions? Yeah, it might be great to land on the moon again. I'd like to get home. You're in this room, and I'm in this room, and there's a lot of things that are your priorities and your intention. You may want to become the best basketball player ever. That's fine. Great. Um, you may want to um, start a whole new industry and be at the tip of the spear for all of that. That's great. Uh, you want to maybe want to write the next great American novel. Okay, fine. And none of those things are bad. But what are your intentions, Paul is saying? This is, this is our intention, if we're walking in the light, to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, to please him. Now, I love the way verse 10 is translated. Sometimes it doesn't come across on the NIV or elsewhere, but he says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, meaning you come to Jesus and he starts to become real to you. It's, I'd, I'd love to say it's automatic. Yes, I want to please the Lord in everything. No, you don't. No, you don't. I don't. Trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord is an act of what we call around here spiritual formation. That's what Paul says in Galatians 4. Oh, that you would be formed like a child in his mother's womb. It is an act of maturing. And it is therefore an act of failing and trying again. Samuel Beckett. Ever tried, ever failed? No matter. Try again. Fail again. Fail better. Now that dude has absolutely no interest in the gospel. But he's preaching right there. And I say that because of what he says there about failing. Ever failed? No matter. What do I mean? When we talk about pleasing... In modern conversation for the last 50 years, when you hear the word pleasing, you usually people hear people say, yes, I'm such a people pleaser, right? Yes, guilty as charged. What does that really mean? It means you do things to please others. Why? So that they will be pleased with you. You will please them so that they will be pleased with you. So that what? So you will feel pleased about yourself. So it's really not people-pleasing that you're out for. It's about you-pleasing. And this is just your prescribed mode of finding that. You please others to get something. That is not what is spoken of here. To please the Lord is not out to win his affections. You already have them. If you weren't sure of that, you just have to look at the cross. Do you think he was sort of wondering, oh, I don't really know if I like them. Yeah, okay. You already have his affection. You are not out to win his favor. You are out to walk in a way that you please him just because. Because he's, like Jim said, daddy. And that means you find pleasure in doing what is pleasing to him, what is goodness, what is righteous, and what is true. And if I might just make sort of a side note here, you know, where do you learn that? From a sermon? No. No. 
How do you learn to walk in goodness, righteousness, and truth with each other? Where do you get an opportunity to act goodness and generous, generously to one another? Here, with them. Where do you get a chance to spur one another on to love and good works and be spurred on to love one another and good works? Where do you find that? Here, from this, oh, mildly, mostly there, mostly with you. And twice you heard Paul say, we don't just avoid what is darkness, we try to expose it. Do you know what a mark of a mature church is? That you have relationships with one another that at some point, as is necessary, somebody is loving enough and honest enough to say to you, dude, I think you're off. And I think you're drifting. And I think you're on a road to nowhere. That's exposing the darkness. That's about walking in truth and in love at the same time. That's the mark of a mature community in which your involvements are based upon a secure identity that makes your life and everybody else's life a concern for pleasing the Lord. That's it. That's walking in light. So where do we begin? How do we wrap this up? Where do we go from here? Uh, last week or the last couple of weeks, I've introduced to you, or maybe you've heard it before, uh, Thomas Akempis. He wrote a book about 500 years ago called The Imitation of Christ. And, he, and, he, and if you read through it, it's just in little bite-sized little devotionals, it's like, it holds a high bar. But he's honest enough to say this. As long as you live, you will be subject to change, whether you will it or not. Now glad, now sorrowful, now pleased, now displeased, now devout, now undevout, now vigorous, now slothful, now gloomy, now merry. Sound like anybody you know? <laughs> yes, and? But a wise man who is well taught in spiritual labor stands unshaken in all such things and heeds little what he feels or from what side the wind of instability blows. We are, here's your SAT word for the day, mercurial. We vacillate backward and forward, and we're up and down and yucky, and man, that's a, you were amazing, and why are you such a... Oops. Where do we begin? I've shared these with you before, but they're based upon what came out of a revival in the 19th century by a pastor named William Williams. Questions that he would ask people in small groups, not as a thing that they were grading their own performance, but as a way to take their own temperature, their own spiritual temperature. And he came up with questions that another pastor's kind of modernized for our way of talking. He, and there's three questions that I, I ask myself today, and I ask you as well. How real has God been to you and your heart this week? How clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? Did that ever cross your mind for any reason? And thirdly, to what degree is that real to you right now? Make sure you don't hear those questions as God comes out with his clipboard. That bad, that bad, that bad. No. If Jesus is a great physician, then he's like a physician that's worth his weight in salt. 
If I look at your vitals, I'm a doctor, and I look at your vitals, and they are less than healthy, the last thing I'm trying to say to you is, oh, you should feel guilty. But I am going to be honest enough with you about where your health is. And that's why I think Paul was saying here in the last verse, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Jesus was wise, Jesus was brave, Jesus was loving, and Jesus is risen. And if that is true, and that is the gospel, then you may think of everything differently. And I have great news for you. How can you begin to consider those questions and maybe be awakened like smelling salts in the way that Paul intends? You get to come to this table. <laughs> what luck. It's here for us. It's here for us to center our minds. So when you receive, do as Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 11. Think about what you're doing. Think about what he's done. And also think about this people that you're a part of. His body, his body. That's what it means to partake worthily. And maybe as we receive, maybe we break through the ritual and we worship until we worship. And then maybe we will know our own little revival in a small way. Let's pray. Revive us, O Lord. Revive our sense of your goodness, of your worthiness, of your welcome, of your forgiveness, of a love that is unrelenting and it does not fluctuate or vacillate, but is good. Father, help us to believe that, that we might walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen.